Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Dobry večer and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Doe. Good evening and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow from the History of Germany podcast. The first Czechoslovak Republic was founded after World War I in 1918, and it was partially to punish the Austrians and Hungarians. But for the Czechs and Slovaks, it was a miracle. Bohemia and Moravia, the parts that are um, part of modern-day Czech Republic today, were the most industrial regions of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and they hadn't been independent for hundreds of years. A lot of history up to this point had been covered on the Bohemian podcast, so we want to go to bohemian.com to hear more. You can do so. And our end of the era tonight will focus on the Munich Agreement. Travis Dow is with us tonight. Travis, how are you? Hi, Pete. Just recently, just a couple years back, I don't know if you got the chance to see it, but they actually displayed the Munich Agreement in Prague for the first time. And it was a historic, um, you know, kind of display because the Munich Agreement was signing away the First Republic of Czechoslovakia. Yeah, in fact, the First Republic was the time where we've covered several episodes because the First Republic was this romanticized time when the so-called movement was at its height, this massive gymnastic movement. We did an episode on hockey in the Czech Republic. It was kind of hockey's way to, uh, you know, stick it to Russia and Austria. This was the time when Czechs were affluent enough to, even though they were a landlocked country, for the first time really enjoy the vast spectrum of global kind of colonial imports. So they had these, um, from the First Republic, they had these colonial, which are now basically traffic or the, you know, the little smoke shops you see. And that's where you could buy your teas and coffees and uh, chocolate and, and just things from around the world. And, and, you know, fruits and things that many Czechs, uh, t- you know, tasted for the first time and again, lost in World War II and under communism. So it, it, you know, in some ways it was romanticized because it was better than the dark ages that came after. And it's true, Travis, you know, when you talk about what has been inherited here, 70 to 80 percent of all the industry in, Czech, in, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, including the porcelain and glass industries, the sugar refineries, more than 40 percent of all the distilleries and breweries, the Skoda Works and Pilsen, um, they all had uh, produced um, locomotives and automobiles and uh, machinery and guns and uh, chemical industries and throughout the world. It all came from Czechoslovakia. Uh, this was not only, as you mentioned, Travis, a, a time to export cultural concepts to the rest of the world from, from a Czechoslovak sort of viewpoint, but also the industry. It was actually an amazing time. 17% of all Hungarian industry that had been developed in Slovakia during the late 19th century also fell to the Republic. Right. Yep. So Czechoslovakia was one of the world's 10 most industrial states. Wrap your head around that for a minute. Exactly. During, during this time. Yes, yes. I'm glad you, you want to emphasize that because that's, that is... Is a, like a really important point to make. Um, 
So there were cities that were bigger. Like, you know, if you went to London at the, at the same time, turn of the century, uh, you know, right after World War I, um, London would seem, you know, Prague would seem like a village in comparison, but it was a boom town. It was massively expanding and way more people had, you know, flushing toilets and indoor plumbing per capita than Prague in Prague than they did in London or anywhere else in the world, except for maybe uh, some places in the States. So, you know, but but compared to other European capitals, it was a marvel. Well, think about this for a minute, Travis. If you come to come to Prague in particular, you're going to see Cubist architecture. You're going to see a lot of the Art Nouveau that was a part of the era. That stuff really wasn't imported. It was exported from the Czechoslovak area. Right. Uh, Muka, the famous artist, the Art Nouveau artist. His influences influence what you still see as uh, we see the Art Nouveau in Paris to this day. Yeah. Um, you'll see some of those things, uh, you know, posted by the by the the metro area uh, in, in a very Art Nouveau Art Nouveau way. The, the that font, was from Alphonse Mucha. Exactly the font of the metro, the font that 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 Art Nouveau font. You know, it's hard to describe over a podcast, um, but you know but what it is when you when you if you've when you ever talk been to pa- if, if you've been to Paris, you know what I'm talking about. You know, it'll say cafe whatever in that font, Mucha created that, or typeface, I should say, I guess, but Mucha, Mucha created that typeface. That is a Czech export. And, you know, I'm walking around Paris going like, oh my God, this looks so, so much like Prague, you know, rather than the other way around, instead of thinking that Prague looks so much like Paris. Um, oh yeah, it, it, there was definitely a huge um, influence in the 1920s. When you take a look at Kind of what we're getting into tonight when we talk about what was what was lost heading into the very dawn of World War II and the Third Reich's influence on this area. We we are taking a step back to this golden age post you know post World War One era uh, when democracy was taking a foothold here, and a lot of that has to do with the First Republic's ties to. The United States president and the ten, and his, his point plan, Woodrow Wilson, his 14 points that he had put in place where he said, quote, the peoples of Austria-Hungary, whose place among the nations we wish to see safeguarded and assured, should be accorded the freest opportunity to autonomous development, unquote. Now, Woodrow Wilson, it, it depends on, on, on what side of the fence you kind of stand. There, there's historians in the United States that thought Woodrow Wilson was an opportunist at the time. He was hesitant when he shouldn't have been hesitant. Uh, there are other people on the other side of the fence thought he was one of the greatest presidents ever in U.S. history because of the calmness that he brought to uh, the Versailles Treaty uh, agreements and uh, the rock star status he had in Europe post-World War I. He used this sort of cachet, this political cachet, uh, to ingratiate himself to the Czechoslovak people and the creation of the Czechoslovak state. And uh, he had uh, an important ally in that in the very first president of Czechoslovakia, Travis. Yes. T.G. Masaryk, um, actually was married to an American woman. Uh, what was she, an actress? I don't remember. I, I can't remember, but she was American. Yeah, and, she, and was, that was a, she was known. Yeah. Uh, she, she, you know, had money. She had her own fortune. Her own family, uh, you know, was, was pretty well off. And um, she married, in, yeah, she married T.G. Masaryk, and he became um, the first Czechoslovak president. And, yeah, that did also kind of create the connection uh, to the everyday man of, you know, the president's wife is American. And, um, you know, the, the, the main train station in Prague is called Wilsonova, you know, Wilson uh, main train station. Right. So there, there's clearly a 
a well, at least it's named that now after the communists left uh, before it was called something else. Um, well, in, in a quick aside here, Travis, too, there's a there's a statue here in Prague that was recently erected, I think, three years ago to Woodrow Wilson. There is that connection. And there's that connection in Washington, D.C. If you ever to go in uh, near the National Cathedral, near DuPont Circle, up Wisconsin Avenue, you're going to see Woodrow Wilson's house. And in his house, I got a chance to see some of the artifacts that he had. And much of it had to do with the Czechoslovak people. He had okay. a really yeah. big connection to Czechoslovakia because his fingerprints were a part of the, the the way to get this thing moving to create this nation state after World War One. But as we mentioned before, and we all know is is, is a fact of history, World War One wasn't the end, the war to end all wars. <laughs> and the dark shadow was looming, of course, over the horizon. And uh, the the clock on the Czechoslovak uh, experiment was ticking down ever so fast. And uh, the, the end of the First Republic was coming to a close. Yeah, so the trouble started with actually um, the way Czechoslovakia was founded, because you mentioned that part of the borders were designed to actually punish Austria and, and Hungary and also uh, Germany to some degree. And uh, Wilson really did want to give people the most autonomy they could have so that they could democratically vote uh, or democratically choose where they wanted to be, you know, part of Austria, Germany, or uh, their own nation. And and people got kind of uh, fed up in the fervor. And if you look at the borders of northern uh, Czech, uh, Czech Republic, where it goes into Saxony, it's really strange because they got to vote again after World War II. And the borders are, you know, goes around villages like a weird jigsaw puzzle. Um but in after World War One, there was a lot of Germans that found themselves now in the new nation of Czechoslovakia, and that already was sort of a ticking time bomb. Um, the Czechs, for the first time, the Czechs and especially the Slovaks, for the first time, got to express their linguistic freedom, which means they, you know, they made. For the first time in history, for a millennia, Slovak, uh, Slovak was the primary language taught in school, and suddenly a lot of Hungarians didn't like this, and Czech was the primary uh, language taught in school, and a lot of Germans didn't like and this. The Germans didn't like it, exactly, especially yes. if you lived in the area of the Sudetenland. Um, yep, that and the, been a, the term a Sudetenland call. really came to be an important buzzword in this time. The term Sudetenland itself, actually the word Sudetenland, like that term for this sliver of a country, you know, it's the border region um, between Germany and Czech Republic on the on the Czech side. And at the, a lot of towns and villages were up to 90% German on that side. But they were just, it was just a minority. But once Hitler and, you know, uh, the evil rhetoric of, you know, once they could grasp onto this term, Sudetenland, like this German-speaking uh, area of Czechoslovakia, then it really became polarized and politicized and um, uh, that there was their own Sudetenland, you know, pro-German parties and this sort of thing developing fast, quickly in the late 20s and early 30s. Well, if you remember, you know, from your history class, folks, as as Hitler was trying to expand and and grow his influence across Europe, he had plans under the table. Of course, what he really wanted to do, what he was saying in public, was one thing. What he wanted to do in the in behind closed doors with his generals and his other potent, his other uh, uh, advisors was another. Yes. And if you if you were to look at the map as as a kind of red blob that was kind of spreading, that was the Third Reich. Um, you, you you would notice that at one point. 
the Czechoslo the Czechoslovakian sort of uh, nation state right there was kind of a, a fist that kind of went through the the abdomen of what was Prussia or or, or uh, uh, Germany, and it just didn't make any sense for German-speaking folks to be uh, in this bubble, uh, so to speak, and that kind of guts right through the middle of of uh, uh, Bavaria. So uh, that's a big thing that that. That eventually was going to become part of the Third Reich, as we saw later. It became a, a, the Bohemian Protectorate uh, and Moravia Protectorate, and we we see these things that Hitler had this idea for making these uh, outrageous demands, so that he that he would really seem like he was trying to compromise when people try to get him down uh, right. to uh, a rational thought. It was all a, a political ploy, and unfortunately for the Czech people and the and the uh, and the Slovak people, they were pawns in this. Right. That's a good way to put it, I would say, yeah. So to appease Hitler, Germany and, and Italy met with representatives from France and the U.K. and Munich. Uh, note that Czechoslovakia wasn't even there, wasn't even invited. They, weren't, they did not even have a seat at the table, all by design. Uh, but with World War I still fresh in everyone's mind, no one except for Hitler wanted another war. And so the great European powers sat down to negotiate at the table. And, of course, uh, you know, there's a... The, the idea of saying that there will be peace in our time was quoted from this Munich agreement, Travis. Yeah, it's it's important what you said about um, he had extreme demands so that what he really wanted is what he got. And it looked like a compromise. So his extreme demand in this case was, well, we'll just march into Czechoslovakia with tanks and take the whole thing. And then the compromise was, well, what if we just give you the Sudetenland, which is really what he wanted all along, right? So um, part of, you know, part of the actual Munich agreement was it, it included some battleship agreements, battleship construction agreements with Great Britain. Um, and there were some other points in the agreement. But the biggest one for Hitler, the one that Hitler was really after, was the territory of the Sudetenland, was getting, um, you know, that additional German population and territory into the fold. And, you know, that that was step one. What he really wanted, of course, was all of Czechoslovakia. Um, but that's that's at a later time. Well, this is un unadulterated appeasement, and I think this yeah. is a textbook issue, even in today's uh, body politic, when you talk about geopolitics this, in today's 21st century world. Well, this, is this, a is hostage, this is a hostage negotiation, is what this yes, is. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the parties involved on the other side of the table were looking at it saying, listen, if we just give in to this one demand, we've already kind of let him do what he wants to do, and he's promising not to do something else. We've heard that a few times in, in modern-day sort of things, when people talk about uh, – uh, you know, uh, pres uh, uh, President Vladimir Putin's sort of issues in in in, uh, uh, in the Ukraine, or Saddam Hussein's issues when he wanted wanted to go into different areas as well. He, these are these are the things that we're talking about. Well, maybe we'll let him do this. It's really kind of maybe a heritage land issue they're talking about. It, you know, it, it it gets it gets to kind of a, a a referenced area. This time is referenced so much yes. about. What's yes. what is good about appeasement and what is bad about appeasement? This exactly, the, yeah. That's that's a really good point. Uh, ever ever since this incident, this has been used as an example of what not to do throughout history. 
you know, no, we don't want to appease the North Vietnamese or whatever, because, <laughs> you know, we've seen that before and, and we don't want to do that. Or we don't want to appease the, the North Koreans because we've seen that before. And, and it may and not ha- be fair to every situation, but it is right. as we did. It, is it has it has been. Yeah. For better or worse, it has been used as an example in every conflict to some degree um, where we've gone in. Uh, I don't want to say unilaterally, but where we've gone into foreign conflicts like even Iraq and Afghanistan, Af- Afghanistan's different maybe but even iraq it was like well do we want to let them have kuwait no because that's you know that's just the next Sudetenland. we need to stop them in their tracks and right now before you know before anything else happens there is no more there is not another munich agreement like ever again and that's uh, and you know because of this because of what happened um you know it didn't spoiler alert it didn't appease hitler <laughs> not even close this was uh, you know less than 1% of the land grab of what he would eventually try to take um is another way of looking at it right so no this you know this wasn't even close to what he actually wanted just 10 mere days after the signing of this agreement, Hitler signed a secret directive for war against Czechoslovakia to begin no later than October 1st. So he was pretty much blowing smoke during the conference the entire time. Right. Uh, during August, the German press was in full, full force with stories alleging that Czechoslovak atrocities against Sudeten Germans were in effect with the intention of forcing the Western powers into putting pressure on the Czechoslovaks to make concessions. So he had it all working for him you know, at, at every part. So he's, he had the, the German people people on his side and especially people in the Sudetenland uh, area uh, hoping that the Germans would come in and if you've seen pictures of this you see a lot of folks waving the, the red swastika flag out there when he uh, approached through in, into Prague later on um, so there were yeah. people that were on board you and, know, they like they like the idea can you imagine this absolutely so so you made two points there for yeah uh, first of all on the border area it's actually a shame it's a um, you know it's it's a shame. Well, it is. I mean, it was that was actually one of the most pro-Nazi areas ever, period, in the Third Reich, um, was in Czechoslovakia in the, the Sudeten Germans. So even after the war, they had a harder time living that down. And um, partially they lived it down because atro- atrocities were committed against them right after the war. But that Absolutely. was the area. If you look yep. at a map, in some towns, it was 90% pro the uh, Czechoslovak version of the Nazi party. And now scenario number two, the second point is Imagine you're someone, you're a Czech living in Prague, an area that was not overwhelmingly Nazi, even if uh, there was a significant Nazi minority living there. Um, you know, a lot of them still were, but but it wasn't a, a majority, I would say, weren't, weren't pro-Nazi. And you're reading about these uh, atrocities that you're hearing about from Germany, but they're supposedly happening in, the Czechoslova- in Czechoslovakia, and you're looking around and going, you know, what atrocities? You know, like everybody living next to each other uh, peacefully the way they have for the last 300 years, 400 years. Well, as, and, as, a, as a person with a, with a journalism degree, I'll tell you in the journalistic history, this, this isn't the first time that, that the press was used to propagate oh, yeah. uh, war efforts. And of course, you saw that uh, with yellow journalism in the uh, American war with Spain in the turn of the century. You saw that there with the, with the blowing up of the USS Maine. Uh, even in World War One, you saw that the atrocities of the, of the, the uh, German, the Kaiser German army coming through Belgium and 
supposedly, you know, uh, raping women and and, and uh, oh, bayoneting yeah. oh, babies. Yeah. Now, most of those atrocities did not happen. There were a lot that did, but uh, the bayoneting of babies and and those type of things were all found out to be made up to get the the blood up of English uh, folks to say, you know what, maybe we do need to join this effort. Uh, and so this has happened before, and Hitler knew exactly how to work it, and he did that, and he really got people galvanized that this was their right. This was their right to have the Sudetenland if for yeah. for the Third Reich. So imagine as the as the Czech government, you're being told to kowtow to the Germans because of atrocities that you know aren't happening, uh, but you know the German press is reporting them, and uh, it it is a it is a chip. Uh, to be played, you know, and and played very well. So, oh yeah. When you, and you're talking about yeah, at this point in this summer of August, the Germans had sent 750,000 soldiers along the border of Czechoslovakia, officially as part of the army maneuvers, quote unquote maneuvers. Um, so you can imagine that people getting a little bit nervous. On the fourth and fifth of September, Binish uh, submitted the fourth plan, granting nearly all of the demands of the Munich Agreement. Basically, Binish was in a position to represent the, the Czechoslovak. People people in the nation, he didn't have a choice. I mean, he wasn't right. invited to the conference anyway. So um, he had to, to see if, what he could salvage of this. And um, he never forgot it, by the way. And, you know, when he took his government uh, in exile during the war, this was what kind of fueled him not to really trust almost anybody. Right. <laughs> because the English were saying, oh, we're going to give this part, we're going to give you away. The French were cool with it. You know, it was it was a bad deal. The Sudeten Germans were under the instruction from Hitler to avoid a compromise. And after the SDP held demonstrations that provoked police actions in Ostrava, which is on the very uh, eastern part of, of the Czech Republic today, on September 7th, in which two of the of their parliamentary de- uh, deputies were arrested, the Sudeten Germans used the incident and false allegations of other atrocities as an excuse to break off further negotiations. So part of Hitler's plan of attack was um, similar to the brown shirts that have been wreaking havoc for a decade now in Germany. Um, he ordered the establishment in on the 17th of September of 1938 of the Sudeten-Deutsches Corps, a paramilitary organization that, again, very much like the, the Waffen-SS or some sort of military branch, just, you know, created disorder in public just to kind of, you know, make it in the news and, and you know, have more reasons um, to, to create demands, basically. Now, the negotiations went on for another week or so because every time the Western allies were about to sign an agreement, Hitler would stack on further demands involving pieces of Poland, Hungary, you know, all kinds of things. And uh, this, this went back and forth. There was almost an agreement signed several times, but eventually a deal was reached on the 29th of September, around one thirty. AM and the Munich agreement that I actually, you know, saw in Prague that had the signatures on it and it's just it's just surreal to actually um, I mean, even if you see a picture online, it is surreal to see the signatures of Adolf Hitler, Neville Chamberlain, Benito Mussolini, and Edouard Daladier all together on one piece of paper. Like that is just it's just wrong. Yeah, of all those names on the list, Travis, the one that gets a lot of blame is Neville Chamberlain. 
he's the one that quoted, we have peace in our time now after this right. Munich agreement. And of course, which was you know, folly. Uh, every, yeah, huge yeah absolute folly. He, go, he goes back to try to, to tell parliament, you know, what great things he did. And uh, here's, here's a guy that was a veteran of politics from World War One uh, that uh, is still is an older man now saying that, you know what, he saved the day again. Um, and a lot of people in England said, you know what, you just made a deal with the devil. It, it really wasn't well received in a lot of, a lot of camps in, in in London, and uh, for obvious reasons, because Hitler had proven time and time again up to this point that he could not be trusted, and this wasn't the best idea. But you got to put yourself in the mind of a 1938 individual, especially a European. Their fathers were, you know, didn't come home from right. World War One. Um, their, uh, their uncles and brothers that did, many of them weren't the same guys they were before. They were maimed. Uh, they had post-traumatic well, stress disorder. They were unemployed. And all this negative feeling, people didn't want to get back involved no, in this. I think, I think people believed that it was not a possibility that a World War II was just simply not on the table. And that was Hitler's ace up his sleeve, is that that's exactly what he wanted. He just, he, he thought, no, you know, we, we did World War One wrong. If we did a redo, we could do it right this time. And no one else felt that way. No one else wanted to go through the horrors again. Um, so yeah, yeah. Everyone, you know, Sudeten Germans celebrated the liberation. All of all of Europe kind of celebrated the, uh, you know, avoidance of another war. It was just kind of silly. And um, another interesting thing to note is that this happened quickly. The agreement called for everything happening within 10 days. And so the occupation zone was split up into five zones and the German army just kind of swept in. So, you know, in zone one, the Czechs had like two days to evacuate the Czech army. And uh, a lot of Czechs left too, kind of as refugees. They, they picked up whatever they could carry on their backs and headed, you know, headed to Prague or headed to what was left, the rump state. Um, there was thousands of, of refugees. And Czechoslovakia, this was a very strategic area because they lost about 70% of their iron and steel industry and, you know, mining the whole nine yards and also 70% of their electrical power. And, you know, out of uh, the, what was Czechoslovakia, 10 million people altogether, I don't remember, but somewhere in that ballpark, they lost about uh, 3.5 million citizens to Germany in that, you know, in that one signing, in that one agreement. And I want you to think about this for a minute, too, folks. Uh, when you look at the things talked behind closed doors, especially in Berlin with uh, Hitler and, and all his all his people that he, he was kind of planning out his his idea about Europe, his his version of the Third Reich Europe. He looked at the Czechs and Slovaks as poor Slavs. Uh, his ranking list, the Slavs were just that in his mind, slaves. They were going to be slaves labor in, in any sort of fashion oh, if God. the war were to take we, a, a different fa- a factor. We did, uh, yeah, because we did an episode on uh, Heydrich. Oh, yeah, uh, uh, Operation Anthropod. Go check, go listen and to Anthropoid. that. An- Operation Anthropoid, you're right, yes. Yes, go listen to that on bohemican.com because that's like the evil plans for the Czechs. The Germans had the evilest plans, uh, besides the Jews, obviously. But as a as a for a country, for an occupied country, um, the Czechs got the short end of the stick on that one. Czechs, if you were if if you were Slavic, uh, that was a, a thing against you. There was a, actually a pretty big gypsy population here in this in this country, as there as somewhat is today. But that was also uh, one of the uh, 
groups that the you know the Nazi the Nazis actually put to death quite a bit. So um, there there were some ulterior motives here to kind of get rid or use folks that did not have enough German heritage in them, the blue eyed yeah. blonde haired folks, of course, um, that uh, they would yeah. be used as subhuman of sort of labor. Well, let's, yeah, let's just say the long term plans were very grim. And uh, luckily, there, was, there wasn't enough time for the long-term plans to come to fruition. But yes, it was bleak. Nope. They had a very bleak future uh, and didn't even know it. So, Travis, as the Munich Agreement signatures weren't, weren't even quite dry yet, we can see that the end of an era was happening for the Czechoslovak people and the government. And uh, this was not one of the things that, that was expected by the people that started off the First Republic. They thought they were going to be around for quite some time, flourish in a new de- a democratic state. In a, in a very global community, uh, that did not happen because of, of Hitler's uh, influence and, and taking over of Czechoslovakia. That wasn't all that the Nazis did. They, they were actually pretty busy after the Munich Agreement was signed. It did not appease Hitler at all in the slightest. He then gobbled up the rest of what is today the Czech Republic, and Slovakia became an independent fascist puppet state, basically. And then, of course, he went on to invade every other surrounding country and basically every other European country and uh, started World War II. Um, So, yeah, it kind of failed as an appeasement issue there. And Travis, as we can say, this really fits the the idea for the History Podcasters Network uh, focus on an end of an era segment. This was an end of an era for the First Republic. Uh, it would not be the last republic, but it would be several generations later before the Czechs would breathe free air again. We hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Pete Coleman for Travis Dow. Have a good evening. You have been listening to the Bohemican Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Doe. Visit bohemican.com for more information on this episode, other episodes, and much more information about history, traditions, and culture in the Czech Republic. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, and review, and don't forget to rate us. We would love to hear from you. Send comments, ideas, and corrections on our comments page on bohemican.com. Or get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Tune in to our sister podcast, History of Alchemy, which is also on iTunes or on historyofalchemy.com. Until next time on the Bohemican Podcast, thank you for listening. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.